Welcome to the Walk Worthy Podcast, a podcast by Hesper Baptist Church located in Cambridge, Ontario. Our local church exists to make disciples who walk worthy of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ with the help of the Holy Spirit to the glory of God the Father. We hope and pray this is encouragement to you and to anyone else you would share this with. Thank you to all those who have served us so well this morning, leading us before the throne of grace. Uh, Keith, who prayed just moments ago, is one of our elders, just in case uh, you didn't know that. And uh, Scott, who has led music for us this morning, is also one of our elders. I'm especially thankful to this group of men on a week like this. Uh, Lots of visitation, lots to do. Um, I continued to give them text updates on what I was doing all week long, and they were uh, in prayer. And so I'm so thankful for a plurality of elders who serve serve the congregation here at Hesler Baptist Church. Let me pray as uh, we look to God's word. Father in heaven, it is both our confidence and joy this morning that your word is perfect, that your word is sure and right and pure, clean, true, desirable, sweet. For we so long that many would see and fear and put their trust in you, the Lord. We so long that many would be saved by the mighty work of your spirit, and we so long that we would be sanctified in your truth. Lord, we want to be the sort of church that walks worthy of the gospel, a church that blesses the nations, and we know that starts with the proclamation of your word, for it is your word that revives the soul. It is your word that makes the simple wise. It is your word that rejoices the heart and enlightens the eyes. Your word endures forever. It is righteous altogether. It is more desirable than gold and sweeter than honey. And so we ask for your special blessing on the proclamation of your word here at Hesler Baptist Church today. Bless the preaching of your word. And not only here, Lord, but we also pray that you would bless the preaching of your word in our city and in our province in our nation, and to the very ends of the earth, we ask, O Lord, that you would help those faithful heralds who open up the scriptures, that you would pour out your spirit upon them and help their proclamation of biblical truth to land on ears that hear and hearts that receive. So pour out your rich blessing of renewal by the power of your spirit here on us today And make much of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Our text this morning is Psalm 63. Please turn there with me. The superscription starts off this inspired text by stating the following. A psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Psalm 63, verse 1. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. 
So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul is satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help. In the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by him will exalt for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This Psalm of David is written under great distress. If you look at the superscription again, those words that precede what is marked in our Bibles as verse 1, you will see that David wrote it when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Now, this is referring to one of two significant events. It is either referring to events in 1 Samuel 20 to 24, where David is fleeing from King Saul, King Saul being jealous that the Lord has taken the kingdom of Israel away from him because of his disobedience. And now it seems that the Lord is handing over the kingdom to King David, even as the people say in their chant, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Saul's jealousy is mounting and he is murderous, and he is now chasing after David. That is 1 Samuel 20 to 24. That's one of the two events that this superscription could be referring to. The second event found in 2 Samuel 15 to 18 is the event of Absalom, David's very own flesh and blood, chasing after him because he wants his father's place upon the throne. He has betrayed his father, he has conspired against his father, and he wants his father's place on the throne. Whichever of these two events are being referred to in this superscription, here's what we know for sure These events show that David is a troubled man. If you were to read 1 Samuel 20 to 24 as Saul is chasing David, you will see the emotive sense of these chapters. I read through them earlier this week and I was struck by them. David is a man on the run. His family is in danger. Anyone who follows him as he flees from Saul is in danger. He has no home. He is living in caves in the wilderness. He is spending his days hiding, escaping, looking over his shoulder and hoping no one is there. And then if you look at 2 Samuel and you read that stretch of text from chapter 15 to 18, this event where David's very own son, picture that, your very own son conspiring against you. As you read that stretch of text, you see David's pain. There is a great deal of weeping and mourning among David and among the people as they flee Jerusalem They go and they live in the wilderness. David makes the decision to leave the ark of the Lord, which represents the presence of the Lord, back in Jerusalem. And then David, later on in those chapters, is made to fight against his very own people, those people who Absalom has raised up to go and conquer his father so that Absalom can sit on the throne. 
And then to cap it all off, Absalom is killed right at the end of that sequence of chapters. And David weeps because, yes, Absalom was after his throne, but my son is gone. My own flesh and blood is gone. David is cut up. He is a troubled man. And like David, we have trouble in our lives. We come around a text this week that is especially appropriate. This week, as I've already mentioned, I visited three elderly men. One has gone to be with the Lord last night, and two others know that they don't have much life left in front of them. And their families grieve. Their church family will miss them after their departure. You scan the past few weeks of my life, just my life, and I've encountered people struggling with the deterioration of their body, people waiting for a diagnosis, people struggling with the loss of a family member, people dealing with family turmoil of various kinds, people dealing with egregious sins committed against them, people struggling with major life adjustments, and who are anticipating major transitions ahead. These are the scenarios that fill this room, and as Keith prayed earlier, there are hidden ones too. There are so many more, and none of these are light, and these struggles and these troubles can leave us in what we might call that sort of proverbial spiritual wilderness. They're disorienting. It's like that instrument of torture at a playground that spins around and around and around. You get someone on that thing, you spin them. I don't know why they're at playgrounds. And you get off and, 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 and you're disoriented. Your, your eyes are going all over the place. Your legs are wobbling. Your head is a mess and you're nauseous as ever. Struggles and troubles, they disorient us. And they cause us to ask this question, what are troubled Christians supposed to do? What should I do when I am in the proverbial spiritual wilderness, when troubles and struggles surround me, when despair and distress have me in a dark place, when I am in emotional turmoil because of my circumstances, where do I go? Well, Psalm 63 answers these questions very clearly. And five verses summarize, or five words summarize the 11 verses of this psalm. Here they are. Troubled Christians cling to God. That is what Psalm 63 is all about. Troubled Christians cling to God. In this psalm, David demonstrates remarkable confidence in God. We, we start to read the first verse, and we think that this is going to be your sort of um, typical lament. But as we read through these 11 verses, all we see is confidence. And it is not a confidence in David's own mighty arms and strong legs. It is a confidence in God. It is a confidence because David is clinging. David is clinging to God. And the psalm, in its three stanzas, you'll see verses 1 to 4, the first stanza, verses 5 to 8, the second stanza, and then 9 to 11, the third stanza. In its three stanzas, this psalm describes what clinging to God looks like for David. There are three ways that David clings to God. Notice number one, stanza number one, verses 1 to 4. We cling to God 
in faith because he is our surety. We cling to God in faith because he is our surety. Within the first four verses of our text, David, you'll notice, looks in three different directions. You can see it. David looks in three different directions. David's faith looks up. David's faith looks back. And David's faith looks forward. Let's take them each in turn. Verse 1, David's faith, faith in general, looks up. First verse of the psalm reminds me of Aaron Ralston. Maybe you've never heard that name before. But in April of 2003, Aaron was hiking in southeastern Utah in Blue John Canyon. He was hiking alone. A boulder dislodges from on top of the canyon, and it pins his arm against the side of the canyon. There's no getting his arm out. His arm is a mess, and no matter what he does, he can't get this weighty boulder off his arm, and he cannot dislodge his arm from between the side of the canyon and the boulder. This gentleman was trapped underneath this boulder for 127 hours. That's a little over five days. The sun is beating down on him in southeastern Utah, and he only has a liter of water in his water bottle during the course of that time. Talk about thirst. By the end of his time, trapped by the boulder, Aaron's body would have been screaming for water. When we are dehydrated, there is only one thing that we want. You can offer somebody who is dehydrated money and luxury, riches, privilege, prestige, all these things. But if they are dying of thirst, they will rip up your blank check for a glass of water. David, in verse 1, we must see he is a thirsty man. He is an earnest man. Everything in this verse points to David's need for God. And he could not have described his need in a better way. Thirst, there is no better way to describe our need for the Lord. There is nothing in this world, as we look at verse 1, that you can offer David other than God. The only solution for David's troubled heart and troubled circumstances is God. And thus the opening cry, look at it with me, O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh it faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. David is looking up in his thirst and he is saying only God will quench it. Friends, I want to pause here for a second. Sometimes we get this wrong idea about what faith looks like. We think that a person of faith must be bold and brave. They must be daring and resilient. They must be a man with a large chest who can force his way through any circumstance. They must be the sort of person that has a different personality type than I do because I'm a little bit more reserved and, you know, I just don't have faith like that other person over there. Sometimes we talk about heroes of the faith, you know, we talk about Spurgeon and we talk about great missionaries and we go, they must have been something unbelievably special. I mean, they're really sort of Christian superheroes. And we get this big, bold, inflated view of these heroes of the faith. 
But let me assure you this morning on the authority of God's word as found in verse 1 of Psalm 63 that if you are feeling altogether weak, if you are feeling altogether weary, disoriented, confused, and you cry out to God, that is a miracle of faith. That is an absolute miracle of faith when we look up to God and call out to Him in our distress. That is a work of the Holy Spirit inside of us. When we feel the impulse to run to God, to cry out to God, to hear from God, to pray to God, that is faith and we are wrong to overlook this ordinary faith in God's ordinary people. Faith here in this text is all about need. It is all about trust. It is all about reliance and weakness. It cries out to God. It sheds tears. It is earnest. And so we see in this first verse, troubled Christians look up and cry out. That's faith. Then look at verse 2. Faith doesn't only look up, but faith looks back. Here we see in verse 2 the object of David's faith. It's described in verse 2. David recalls the good times when he worshipped God in the sanctuary in the tabernacle. There he beheld God's power and God's glory. Now we don't know the circumstances surrounding this experience that David is describing But what we do know is that David met with God and God's power and God's glory were evident to him in this meeting. And so the object of David's faith then is the almighty and glorious God. That is where David's faith rests. It is the memory of God's power and glory that informs David's yearning for God in the present. Troubled Christians They look back. They look back and remember all the ways that God has worked in the past. We remember God the creator who has fashioned all things by his power. He has spoken all things into existence. We remember God the redeemer who has gloriously orchestrated salvation for his people. We remember God the provider who has seen to our every need, shelter, nutrition, finances, work, family, friends. He has overseen it all. And troubled Christians recite all that they know to be true of God. Our God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. Our God is omniscient. He knows all things. Our God is omnipresent. He is everywhere present. And our God, and here is a truth that keeps me comforted in these days, Psalm 121, our God never slumbers or sleeps. Even when you have to shut your eyes and, and, and turn off and go into a semi-unconscious state with work left undone, with stresses unfolding before you, our God who knows those things does not have to grab a rest so that he can continue to function, so that he can be your help and your strength. He never slumbers and sleeps. His eye is never away from those that he loves. It is as we remember and recite God's past acts that our faith is bolstered for the present and for the future. Troubled Christians, the faith of troubled Christians, looks back. So we look up, we look back, and third, look at verses 3 and 4. Faith looks forward. 
David mentions in verse 3 one more characteristic of God. He mentions God's steadfast love, his chesed. I love how Dr. Ian Valancourt defines the steadfast love of God in his forthcoming book, Treasuring the Psalms. He says this, In its Old Testament context, this great covenant word reminds us that the God who purchased his people out of slavery is tender toward them, faithful to them, and he will never let them go. I really love how the hymn writer describes the love of God. If you could grab all the oceans and fill them with ink, and you could use the sky as your parchment, your paper, and you could grab a hold of every single stalk that grows on planet Earth and turn it into a pen, and you could employ the services of every human that has breath in their lungs to be a writer, and you were to say to them, write the love of God on the sky, there wouldn't be enough sky. You would need whole new galaxies to write about the love of God. To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. This is the steadfast, the tender, the faithful, the enduring love of God for his people. Friend, God loves you. And he has loved you so much and so tenderly that he has sent his son to die for your sins upon Calvary's cross while you were yet his enemy. This is the love of God. And now for all eternity, if we were given a pen, we would blacken the sky with ink to try and describe the love that God has for us. And David, in verse 3, says... This love of God, it's better than life. It is better to have God's steadfast love than anything else in the world, even a beating heart and breathing lungs. And thus, David says, as my faith looks forward from here and into the future, I will praise this God. Faith looks forward. I will praise this God for His steadfast love. Troubled Christians look forward. In light of the steadfast love of God, they are resolved to praise God with their whole life. That is the realization that the psalmist sets before us. It is the sort of meditation that ought to inform our praise in troubled times, that the God of heaven and earth has loved us with a love unlike any sort of love that this world is familiar with. He so loved us that he sent his son. He so loved us that he sent his son to die for us while we were yet his enemy. And that sort of love informs our praise. Troubled Christians cling to God in faith because he is their surety. That's the first stanza. Second stanza, look with me, verses 5 to 8. We cling to God not only in faith, but we cling to God for help because He is our stronghold. 
this stanza brings to mind three different pictures that aid us in seeing what sort of help the Lord is. Do you see the pictures within this stretch of verses, five to, five to eight, verses five to eight? First, there is the picture of satisfaction. God is a help that satisfies. My soul, verse five, will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. Some people translate this, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and fatness. Here we have a picture of a sumptuous and satisfying feast. The fat is nutritious and a delicacy. Now, in a fat-phobic world, we don't really understand that, but uh, all of our little fat-free this, that, and the other things, animal fats are actually good for us uh, in moderation. Um, But here, fat is a delicacy. It is a delight. It is something that satiates. It is something that satisfies Brandon and I get our pork from a Mennonite farmer. We got to drive about 40, 45 minutes to go to this guy's house. He doesn't have a phone. So we get there. We order however many pounds of pork we want. We tell him what sort of cuts we want. And then we drive back a week later and we pick up all, all, all those cuts of meat. And one of our favorite cuts is a pork shoulder. And we get the pork shoulder with skin on. And there's about a three-quarter inch layer of fat between the skin and between the meat. And I take our butcher knife, and I cut off that fat, and I stick that pork in a pan, and I put it on the bottom, um, the bottom shelf of our oven, and then I stick that layer of that three-quarter inches of fat and skin on the top layer of the oven, and I let it drip down on our pork roast for about two hours. It's a... <laughs> Come on over for dinner. (laughs) It is a crispy and rich treat that satisfies. David is using this illustration of rich food to communicate that God is incomparably satisfying. There is nothing on earth that can satisfy us like God, especially when we are going through troubling times. No amount of entertainment No amount of distraction, no amount of wealth, no amount of popularity, no amount of affirmation, no substance on earth can satisfy us like God can. Friends, we will look for something to satisfy us, especially when we are troubled. We need not look, though, any further than God. And if you are looking, if you know yourself to be looking in any other place this morning for satisfaction... Let me tell you this, you will come up empty. You will come up absolutely empty because we were made for God. Friends, I will never get tired of repeating Herman Bavinck, the Dutch theologian, who says at the top of one of his systematic theologies, God and God alone is our highest good. I'll never get tired of saying that because it is God who is satisfying. It is God that the soul longs for. It is God that we were made for. And that is David's confidence in the face of trouble. God will satisfy me. He will meet my needs. That's the picture we get in verse 5 of the all-satisfying God. God is a help that satisfies. Notice the second picture that we get in verse 7. There's the picture of protection. God is a help that protects David says, in the shadow of your wings, I sing for joy. We all know what this illustration is about. You picture a mother hen who has her chicks, her vulnerable chicks, 
gathered up underneath her wings. And so you think about a storm that is raging, a wind is blowing through, and there's torrential rain, and the chicks come running, and mom opens up her wings, and they come, and they nestle underneath her, and she closes up her wings, and it's as if nothing's happening out there, because mom's got me. That is the picture that David is painting in verse 7. There is safety from the raging storm in the wings of mom. That is the comfort that we know in our Father, God. He protects his vulnerable children. He will keep us from stumbling, Jude says, and present us before his presence with great joy. And that's a reason to praise God. God is a help that protects. God's a help that satisfies. God's a help that protects. Look at the third picture in this text. This verse 8 just brings out, uh, it just gives me picturesque language as I read it. God is a help that sustains. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Our little guy, Nathan, clings to his parents under four circumstances. He's fairly independent, and he loves to run around and cause a lot of trouble. We thought that two negatives would make a positive, but sure didn't. He clings to us in four different circumstances. When he's shy, when he's scared, when he's hurt, and when he's tired. And in those circumstances, he wants to be held because he knows that in our arms there is comfort. He knows that in our arms there is rest, there is sympathy, there is consolation, there is strength. We will hold him up when he cannot hold himself up. We will hold him and we will not let him go. In this text, David says, my soul clings to you. The word cling there is the word in Genesis 2.24 that the Lord uses for marital union. It's a pretty intense clinging. But here's the qualifier. Your right hand upholds me. Yes, we hold on to God when we are in distress. But here is the magic, friends. Here is the beauty. The Lord holds on to us. God holds on to us. That is the picture here. His right hand upholds us. That's the assurance. When we are journeying through troubling times, God will hold on to us. He will sustain us. That's the sort of help that God is, verse 5 to 8. He is an all-satisfying help. He is a protecting help. He is a help that sustains. So, God, so troubled Christians can cling to God for help because He is our stronghold. Notice thirdly, the last stanza, verse 9 to 11. We don't only cling to God in faith. We don't only cling to God for help. But we cling to God, verse 9 to 11, for justice. Because he is our vindicator. We cling to God for justice because he is our vindicator. Verse 9. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. What is happening in in, in these three verses? (laughs) Some of us might ask, is David allowed to say that? Whatever happened to love your enemies... Isn't the Christian called to turn the other cheek? Are these even appropriate words? They seem vengeful and violent. But a closer look at these words show that they are not inappropriate at all. Rather, they are most appropriate. They are words that anticipate the justice of God at work. David has confidence 
that all the wrongs that he has faced will eventually be righted. He has confidence that the judge of all the earth will bring down his gavel and put to rest all that is at unrest. In the end, David will be vindicated and his name will be cleared. And David's hope is our hope as well. It is a certain hope. The hope of the Christian is that God will put a definitive end to our sin and our suffering. There is a day coming when everyone who stands against the Lord's anointed will be stopped. All of the injustices that you and I are aware of will be stopped, and we can trust the Lord on this. He sees every injustice. He knows every injustice. He hates injustice, and he will deal with every last injustice decisively. All our troubles have a timestamp on them. God, through Jesus Christ, has won the victory over sin and over death and over Satan. Sin is defeated at the cross of Christ. Paul tells us, he became sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Sin is defeated. Death is defeated at the cross of Christ. The apostle Paul says, death is swallowed up in victory, and then he taunts death. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Satan is defeated at the cross of Christ. The reason the Son of God appeared, John tells us, is to destroy, was to destroy the works of the devil. Friends, any prayer for heaven is a prayer for the justice of God to be meted out. Any longing for the new heavens and the new earth is a longing for the justice of God to be meted out. Any longing for Christ is a longing for justice. It is a longing for wickedness to be crushed. It is a longing for the God of peace to crush Satan underneath his feet. Troubled Christians cling to God, longing for the justice of God, which is certain and which is coming soon. But let me warn all of us here this morning, if we do not stand with the Lord's anointed, the Lord Jesus Christ, we will end up on the wrong side of God's justice. And so, friends, let us make certain that we are safe in Christ today. Today is the day of salvation. If you have not trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ took upon himself the just wages of our sins so that we could have life in him and escape the wrath of God. So we cling to God for justice because he is our vindicator. That's our text this morning. I want to give us three applications to our text in closing. Caleb, the Word of God has just told us that troubled Christians cling to God. Great. How do I cling to God? Anyone asking that question, I want to give you three practicalities as we continue in worship. What does clinging to God look like? How do I cling to God? Three practicalities. You can write them down if you need to. We cling to God through prayer. That is what the psalmist does here. My God, I earnestly seek you. He is calling out to the Lord. We cry to God wherever we are. It doesn't matter what our circumstances are. It doesn't matter if we sinned in the last 10 seconds. We cry out to God in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We call out to Him in prayer. We cling to Him in prayer. And we seek the prayers of God's people. We need each other. 
And that can happen through Monday evening prayer meeting or contacting the church office. We seek to pray. We seek to come before the Lord in prayer. We cling to God through prayer. Number two, how do we cling to God? We cling to God through the promises and precepts of his word. We cling to him through prayer. We cling to him through the promises and precepts of his word. The Psalms are especially helpful in this regard. When we are feeling low, the Psalms give us language for expressing our grief, for expressing our lament, for expressing our sorrow. When we are feeling great, the Psalms give us great language for praising the one who is holy. The Psalms help us to turn our face to the living God. As I was going through my ordination statement and I was writing my statement on the doctrine of God, all of God's attributes, I found most of my descriptors of who God is in the book of Psalms. It would be amazing to have a scholar or a biblical theologian write a book about the attributes of God restricted only to the Psalms. It would be a powerful read. So we cling to God through the promises and precepts of his word. Thirdly, we cling to God through his people. Christian, you were never meant to live the Christian life alone. You need God's people. We are in this together. We do life together. So if you have not joined a local church, friend, join a local church. Friend, if you are not accountable to a local church, become accountable to the local church. If you're not in a life group, join a life group. Let other Christians know where you are at. Speak with an elder at the church that you attend. We need the body. It is an invaluable God-given resource. And we cling to the living God with the help of his people. Troubled Christians cling to God. We do so through prayer. We do so through God's promises and precepts. And we do so through God's people. Why don't we pray together? Father in heaven, we give you thanks for the help of this text on a day like today, and we pray that you would implant, by the power of your Holy Spirit, these words of life upon each of our hearts to the glory of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and all God's people say, amen.